All right, well, now we're going to go to the Lord. We're going to ask him to bring his blessings onto our church and our city. And so pray with me. Father, we love you. We love what you have done in our lives. We love that in the good and in the bad, we can bless your name and worship you. We can find hope and life in everything that's going on. Oh God, we want so much to share the blessing of who you are with the rest of the city that you've called us to live with and live in. God, we want your blessings to flow as far as the curse is found in all of San Diego's workplaces, in all of the homes here in San Diego, in all of our neighborhoods. We want to see Jesus, his love, his power, his grace, his understanding, his forgiveness to reign. And so, God, would you bring more of you uh, into this city? And we pray, God, through these events, um, through all the things that we're doing, whether it's celebrating together, where it's serving together, God, in all these things, we want more of you in us so that we can be more of you into the city. And so help us as a church to be your people. Help us to have wisdom as we live and walk in relationships, in our work, in our homes, our families. God, we want you to be honored so that you would become known and famous here in San Diego. And it's to that end, God, that now we come to your word. Uh, We know that your word has the power to build us up. And so we pray that you'd open our hearts and teach us your perspective and the way that you respond even to our questions. So be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn it to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at some verses. If you don't have a Bible, the verses we're going to look at are in the bulletin on the inside. There's also a place there to take notes. Before we look at the scriptures, though, I just want to set the table for where we're going. Um, lots of people in your life and in mine have objections to Christianity, right? There's lots of objections. Just about everybody in this room, both the Christians here and the non-Christians, have objected to different aspects of Christianity um, in their lives. Uh, Many Christians and non-Christians in this room right now, it's not just in the past, but many people today right now in this room have objections. There are things that you struggle with. There are questions that you don't have good answers for. And some of these things cause angst for you personally. Some of these things cause angst for you because you know that people that you love and care about have these questions and you don't know how to answer them. Right, and so objections, um, and these can be objections about things the Bible teaches, things that the church does, or the things that are done in the name of Jesus in our culture. Right, objections abound. Um, And for most people, their objections to Christianity cause them to disengage from the church. It's kind of natural. It doesn't happen all at once, but most people feel like their objections call God into question. Like their objections in some way demonstrate a lack of faith. Sometimes the questions that we have make us feel like, well, I must be the only one because everybody else seems to be so happy. Everybody else seems to just get along without asking this question, so I must be alone here. And so we feel isolated from the rest of the church. We feel isolated, like we're the only one, and we can't bring up our objections in the church, because in some ways, doesn't this objection kind of condemn God, or maybe it condemns the church? And so it causes us to sometimes drift away, to become isolated from the church community. You might be struggling today with something that you can't resolve, but you can't talk about it, which makes it even worse. And so God gives us the Bible, right? The the Bible is supposed to be the thing that answers all of our objections, right? It's supposed to be God's revelation of himself, how God thinks and feels, 
what God's doing in the world and all that he wants and expects from us. Um, and what's wonderful about the Bible is that it's a library. It's literally a library with all kinds of different types of writing. Some of it's history, some of it's poetry. What's exciting to me and uh, what's wonderful for me is that most of the New Testament comes in the form of letters. Okay, they're letters. And these are letters that are written by people who have the authority of Jesus and they're writing to churches and to people very often addressing their objections. Most of the New Testament is written to people who are trying to understand Jesus and they're trying to figure out what does Jesus mean for their lives. And in our passage today, what we're going to look at today, we're going to see that the Bible doesn't actually ignore our objections. But it, it, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't sort of ignore our objections hoping that they'll go away if we don't talk about them. No, no, no. Instead, the Bible expects our objections. Okay, the Bible expects our objections. It anticipates them, welcomes them, and addresses them. Okay, and for some of you, this is really good news. For some of you, you're made to feel like, oh man, no, I can't really talk about, no, no, no. The Bible, it, it expects us to object. It anticipates our objections, it welcomes our objections, and it addresses them. And it does this by bringing us face to face with the God who loves us and has saved us through Jesus. Okay, and so last week in Romans 3 verses 3 and 4, we saw Paul defending God in the face of human evil. You know, this sort of, just a pretty natural objection, phrased a little bit differently than sometimes the way it's phrased today, but basically like, how could God be good if there's so much evil in the world done by people? Okay, Paul addressed that. And when he said that, he actually says, you know what, God's perfection is actually highlighted against the backdrop of human imperfection. We saw last week that the evil is not God's fault, right? It's not God's fault, but he's here to help. And so after saying this, in the passage that we're going to look at, Paul anticipates our, an objection. He knows that what he has said is going to cause people to object. And so what does he do? He voices the objection. What he says is, if our sin shows how perfect God is, then why is God angry with our sin? Right? And he, he addresses this objection several ways. We're going to read this in Romans 3, verses 5 through 8. It's going to be up on the screens here in your bulletin. Let's read this. This is God's word for us today. Paul says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But, objection again, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And so what is this? This is pushback. Okay, this is an objection. And again, I want you to know that the Bible expects our objections. It actually voices our objections. In this passage, we see that Paul knows someone's going to object, and he actually states their objection he welcomes it, anticipates it, and he addresses it. And so I want to encourage you that you're now in a church that isn't afraid of questions and objections. Um, the Bible can handle them. As a church, we might not have all the answers, but we're not going to hide our objections 
in a closet somewhere. We're not going to try to act like they don't exist. We're not going to act like everything in the Bible is as easy to understand as everything else. We want to address these objections. And so we're going to watch Paul do this, that he, he addresses this objection. If our sin shows how perfect God is, then shouldn't God not be angry with us for showing how perfect he is? Right? I mean, this is just the first way. And Paul addresses this objection, again, by bringing us into the presence of God. He reintroduces us to God, and he reminds us of who God is and what God does. And what Paul shows us in his response to this objection, what we're going to see in these verses, um, is that this objection, if you believe it, will cause you to lose God in your life. Okay? So this objection loses God in your life. If you embrace this objection, you are going to lose God. Okay? And so if you think this way about God's judgment, about God's wrath that he mentions in this passage, you're going to lose God. And you're going to lose God because, first, you're going to lose God's mission. Okay? If you don't understand what this passage is teaching and the way Paul addresses this objection, you're going to lose God's mission. Okay? Verse 6, Paul says, by no means, and his, his addressing of the objection is another question. He says, for how then could God judge the world? What Paul is saying here, he's saying God's wrath doesn't make God evil. Okay? His wrath doesn't make him evil because remember, it's God's mission to judge the world. One of the things on God's job description is to be the judge of all the earth, okay? And judging, when the Bible talks about judging, it's not always a negative reality, okay? This is really important for us to understand. We often think about judgment as just a negative thing, but God's judgment includes both judgment that's negative, but also blessing, Okay, and we saw this just in Romans chapter 2. I don't know if you remember this passage, but in Romans 2, verses 9 through 11, Paul says there, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. And so what we see here is that God's judgment both at the end of time, but also throughout our lives. God's judgment in the presence is the way that God is working to fix the world. God's judgment is part of his process of fixing what's wrong with the world. And we've seen, if you've been with us in Romans 1 and Romans 2, that God's judgment is God letting us experience the consequences of our actions both good and bad, right? God's wrath, it's mentioned in verse five, um, is his settled opposition to sin and unrighteousness. God's wrath is his righteous punishment against sin. Okay, so let's talk about this just for a second. In, in, in a book by Henry Cloud called Boundaries, he says this. He said, God sets standards, but he lets, his, he lets people be who they are, and then he separates himself from them when they misbehave. Saying, in effect, you can be that way if you choose, but you cannot come into my house. And this is very much, this can help us explain, like, why so much evil exists in the world, right? There are some people who say God should never judge, but then there's a whole other group of people who say, why isn't God judging more, <laughs> right? Why isn't God putting an end to all of this, um, 
the judgment of God is often manifested in letting us go, in actually not giving us punishment, but letting us experience deeper and deeper um, bondage to sin, being controlled by the things that we do and the things, I mean, initially it's like we choose to sin. Um, ultimately what happens is sin then governs and controls us. And so, and so God allows this to happen. It's, in some ways, God pleads with us. He, he begs us to stay. He sets standards for what is right. But then he says, like, ultimately it's up to you. You have to make a decision whether you want to follow me or not. And if you don't, you're going to, you're going to lose me. You're going to lose me in your life. And so um, Paul has described this in Romans 1 and Romans 2, um, that God's judgment is God disrupting our sinful lives so that we'll come back. Judgment is designed to wake us up, to bring us back. And so God's righteousness is actually shown in his judgment of the world. It's not opposed to him judging the world. Okay? Some people think, well, God is mean or God's unrighteous if he judges the world. And Paul says the opposite that it's actually God's righteousness that enables him to judge the world, to stop what's evil and to bless what's good. And so, and then as we think about this, I also want to make sure that you don't forget the gospel of Jesus, okay? Because in all of the discussion of God's judgment, in the discussion here of God's wrath, this doesn't mean that there's no hope. In fact, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Jesus came into the world to rescue the unrighteous and the evil. 1 Peter 3.18 says this clearly. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so, in any discussion about God's wrath, in any discussion about judgment, it needs to be abundantly clear that God's mission in the world is either to remove our sin from us or to remove us from the world, okay? These are the choices. In one hand, we see God's righteous justice, right, as he's judging people and getting them out of the world. Um, in the other way, though, we see God's extravagant mercy. We see his mercy and his forgiveness. And so given the choice, like I'm up for God's mercy, I would choose God's mercy, and what I love most about God's mercy and the forgiveness that's offered by Jesus is that it actually shows that God isn't giving up on people. Okay, God is committed to people. He's not giving up. God is not gonna wipe the entire world away and start over. No, instead what God is doing is he's bringing judgment to remove sin from the world. And he did that first and foremost in Jesus. You have to understand that the righteous one suffered for sin. And so God's wrath first is doled out on himself. God takes his own judgment. God takes his own punishment for sin so that we can be forgiven. And so we need to know that. We need to understand that because it changes how we think. God isn't just up there um, pouring out wrath on, on people. No, he's experienced it himself first and foremost. Nobody ever has to be um, nobody ever has to suffer God's wrath. There's always a way out. And so God renews people through the work of Jesus and he sends those people out to renew the world. That's the mission of God and that's the mission that we lose if we say that God can't judge. 
If we say God can't judge, then God's mission to renew the world goes away. And so we don't just lose God's mission, but we also lose God's character. Okay, this is the second thing that we lose in terms of losing God if we give in to this objection that Paul addresses. So we don't just lose God's mission, but we lose God's character. This is verse 7. He says, If I, or if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So again, the objection is this. If my lie makes God's truth and glory shine, then shouldn't God not condemn me as a sinner? Right? I'm doing this good thing. Because of my sin, God looks truer. God looks um, better. God looks even more righteous. His glory shines brighter. So then, why is he blaming me for this? And again, Paul did say earlier in verse 4 that God can and does bring good out of evil. We talked about that last week. But the good that God does in response to our evil includes God condemning sin. Okay, God's condemnation of sin and sinners um, is part of his character. That God's character opposes sin and evil. He opposes everything. And it's not just that God has a list of rules that he invented and put up on a wall somewhere just to make your life miserable. Uh, That's not what God's commands are. That's not what sin is. No, sin is everything that doesn't bring life and flourishing for people. Um, And God has revealed what will make us flourish in the Bible. And so we actually want God to put an end to evil, don't we? I mean, we want evil to end. We want justice to come. And so we need to oppose evil. We need to stop evil with the power that we have. And it's actually God's judgment against sin that actually shows his truth and his righteousness and his glory. And again, the gospel teaches us that no one has to be condemned as a sinner. Okay, the gospel teaches us that that no one, like no one has to be condemned. Like this reality that God judges, the reality of wrath and condemnation, it's scary for us. It's uncomfortable for us. Um, For most people, especially when you care about someone who's not a Christian, the idea of God's wrath and condemnation is not something that you like to talk about. It's kind of something that you wish would never get brought up because you don't want to have to talk about God opposing people or God removing sinners from the world or judging them. And yet, um, I think it's because we don't really understand and sometimes we don't care about why or what God wants to do with the world. Sometimes we can make good connections between God's rules and what is good. Sometimes we see God's rules and we think, oh yeah, that really is good for us. Um, Don't murder. Okay, yeah, we get that one, right? Murdering's bad for us. It's bad for human flourishing. Like, we get that. Some of the commands are are easy to be able to see. They're not just right, but they're good for people. Um, And then there's other stuff that's not so easy for us to get, in the realm of sexuality, God's view of sexuality. Um, some of it we agree with. Some of it it's like, oh, come on, really? Like, how out of step is that with the world? Like, is that really all that bad? Come on. Um, and so we struggle with this. And the idea that God would judge people, the, the idea that God would condemn people for living in ways that don't follow him is difficult. Um, it's difficult for us. Um, 
And so even when we don't understand why the Bible says what it says, even when we don't understand the character of God behind some of his commands in the Bible, what's really important for us to never forget is that no one has to be condemned as a sinner. Even if you don't understand God's commands, it's still really good for you to follow them. Okay, you might not get it, you might not understand it, but it's still good. It's part of the character of God. Every command that's in the Bible, every standard that God sets is designed to lead to life. And if you've experienced the gospel of Jesus, if you've experienced his peace, if you've experienced his forgiveness, if you've experienced the presence of a God who when he is with you, nothing else matters, then you can remember that that's the same God who has said the thing that you don't necessarily agree with or understand. And you should trust him enough to follow him and to try to understand. And so we know that the, the gospel teaches this, that no one has to be condemned. Jesus was known as someone who hung out with sinners. Jesus welcomed them. Jesus spent time with them. Jesus invited them to return to a relationship with God. And he did all this because God gives them every chance to turn back. God's doors are open wide. No one has to be condemned. Everyone can return to God and escape condemnation. Luigi read that passage for us in Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God has set us free. The gospel sets us free from the law of sin and death. And so everyone can return to God. Everyone can escape condemnation because on the cross, God condemned Jesus. And this is Romans 8, verse 3. It says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. And so God's character is committed to opposing sin and to removing it from the world. God's character is to oppose anything that doesn't produce human flourishing. God's character, though, is also influenced. Part of his character is love and a desire to see his people renewed. And so what did God do? He took our sin on himself so that we could be forgiven. Before before you experience any of God's condemnation, you need to know that Jesus experienced God's condemnation so that you never, ever have to. And so we lose God's character and his opposition, his healthy and righteous opposition to sin. Um, when we buy into this objection, we lose his character. Um, and then the third and final thing that you'll lose with this objection to God's judgment is you'll lose God's presence. You'll lose God's presence. Verse 8 is the logical progression of this thinking. So if you're following along, you can see how Paul is reasoning from one verse to the next. He basically says in verse 8, why not do evil that good may come? Right? This is the logical conclusion, right? If our sin highlights God's goodness... If our lie makes God's truth and glory abound, so good stuff happens when we do evil, well then, right? Let's just do evil so that good would abound. Paul's response is pretty terse. Um, he doesn't have a whole lot of 
time for this. He says, people who think this, people who slanderously charge us with saying this, end of verse 8, their condemnation is just. And what he's saying there is he's saying, people who say this, who think this, and accuse us of saying this, they deserve the judgment that they're going to get. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying any thinking, whether it be logical or otherwise, any thinking that promotes evil is not from God. It's evil and it deserves to be condemned. Encouraging people to do evil ruins the world. It ruins relationships. It destroys friendships. It causes us to be unfaithful. Right? It ruins people. And so at this point, you've not only lost sight of God's mission, right? So you're not working with what God is doing in the world. You haven't just lost God's character. You're out of step with what God is like. But at this point, you lose God's presence. You lose God's presence because you can't think this way. Hey, let's do evil so that good may come. You can't think that way if you have a real relationship with God. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, would you say this to the Savior who was tortured and killed for you? I mean, would you say to Jesus, hey, let me do this evil so that Jesus' sacrifice would be greater? Would you say that? I mean, how can I see with the eye of faith, how could I see Jesus suffering on the cross for me and then want to do more of what put him there? This would be like if our military were to finally and decisively defeat terrorism in the world. Okay, try to imagine that for a second. What if all of our troops came home because our military efforts were finished? And I know there's more than just terror out there, and, there, and we have other, other reasons why our military gets deployed. But they, they, they come home absolutely victorious in the war on terror, and we herald them as the greatest military force in the world. And then we commit ourselves to promoting terrorism so that terror attacks would actually be revived and would multiply in the world. Right? What if we began to use social media, we began to have community meetings, and we began to promote terrorism and terrorist acts? Now, why would we do that? What if somebody said, oh, well, you don't understand. I'm doing this because I want to show how powerful our military is. I'm doing this because I don't want anybody to forget just how amazing and wonderful our military is. What would you say to that? You might not say anything. You might be like, I think I need to skip out on this conversation because this is not going to go anywhere. If you think that, like I don't even imagine how you could possibly think that. It seems ludicrous, doesn't it? I could, you know, we might be able to say, you know what, if you think that, you're missing the mission, the character, and the presence of our military, right? The people that you're wanting to serve don't want you to do this, right? Their mission is to end terror, and you are promoting its increase. 
Um, their character is not to promote terror, but to bring an end to it. And you would, like, and so you're, you're going against the character and the nature of what they're trying to do. Um, and you'd be ashamed to probably say this in their presence. I mean, when you think about the way that the military would be forced to suffer by those kinds of actions, the death, the loss, the anxiety, the torture that it is to be deployed and to serve, not just to them, but to their families, right? because of your actions. Friends, we do the same thing to our Savior Jesus. We do the same thing to our God when we don't take our sin seriously. And so we want to let the, we want to let the mission of Jesus, we want to let the character of Jesus and the presence of Jesus renew you. We want to let his character, his mission, and his presence, like his desire is to renew the world. And that should motivate you. It should motivate me to honor him in every area of life, in every relationship, in every part of who we are and what we do. Um, and I know we don't set out thinking this way. I know most of us don't say, yeah, we're going to do this because then God looks better. Although there are times, right? There are times when we say, you know what? This doesn't really matter because God will forgive me. That's a form of this kind of misunderstanding. Um, and I've done this. I've done this in my own heart and life. I've had times in my life where I've literally said, God, leave me alone until I'm ready to confess. So I've been guilty of this. I've had relationships where I've just thought, yeah, I probably shouldn't be this way, but I don't know. I struggle with sin, so shoot me. I've had relationships where I have not actually taken my responsibility seriously. And I have played footloose and fancy free with God's grace. I have abused God and his grace. Um, and by doing this, like, there have been times when I've literally pushed God's presence away from me. Um, there have been times when I've acted in ways that Jesus would never act. Um, so his presence, his character... And then his mission, I mean, sometimes this really, this is the one that helps me sometimes. Like, all three of these help me at different times. But sometimes the mission of Jesus reminds me to say, Stephen, what in the world are you doing right now? Like, why are you doing this? Like, there's so many better things you could be doing right now than this. Than treating this person in this way. Than getting angry like this. Stephen, don't you realize that Jesus wants to renew the world and he wants your renewed heart to be part of his mission? And so, I'm thankful for the Bible that it brings up our objections. I'm thankful for the way the Bible addresses them. I'm thankful for the ability to bring the message of Jesus in to speak to make us feel guilty, but not just to make us feel guilty, to make us understand how much we're loved and to move us so that we take the next step. 
I mean, for you, what's the next step in dealing with your sin? What's the next step in the relationships in your life? Like, what do you need to do? What do you need to confess to God? Where do you need to get help? Because I'll tell you, there's stuff that's so bound up in my heart, I can't deal with it on my own. If I don't have somebody else that I'm talking with about it, it will never go away. And so let the presence of Jesus and his character and his mission, his mission to renew the world, invite you to honor him in every area of your life. Um, and then you can take these three elements into, into a lot of different kinds of objections, right? We're just dealing with the one that Paul deals with in, um, in, in, this, in this passage, but these, object, or these elements may help you um, to address other objections that you might have. And so let me just give them to you, these objections. Um, just ask yourself this question, how does this fit with God's mission? Right? The objection could be a question that you have or something you struggle with in the Bible. Um, the objection could be in your life, there's something you're doing that's objecting to God, where you're doing something he doesn't want you to do. And you want to ask yourself these questions. You know, does this line up with what God's doing in the world? Like, does this fit with God's mission? Or two, how does this fit with God's character? Right? Does this reflect what Jesus would do or what he did on earth? And then three, how does this fit with God's presence? You know, can you do this knowing that he is with you and he's smiling? And what's crucial for you in doing this is to do this in community. Like I said, you can't do this alone. Don't trust, I mean, feel free to have at it. Like, go at it on your own if you want initially. Um, you're going to find out, though, that you're going to grow much faster. You're going you're gonna to see a lot more of the power and the presence of God if you do this in community. If you talk to someone else in your life group, someone else in a discipling relationship, you can't be alone with your stuff. You've got to talk to other people about it. Um, so don't be alone with your objections, right? Whether it's a moral objection because of something you're doing or something intellectual where you're struggling with understanding how does something fit together, why does the Bible say something, go to someone and just say, look, here's my question. This is what doesn't make sense to me. And if you can't figure it out together, then go together and ask someone else. Ask a leader. Ask me. Um, don't be alone with this. Um, just as we end, I want to ask you a question. Um, who in this room has ever had a problem with something about God or Jesus or Christianity? Cool. So, I want you to know that if you are here and you have an objection or a problem with God or Jesus or Christianity, welcome to the family. <laughs> You're not alone. Um, it's really important for you to know. Now, for those of you who have had a problem before, um, how many of you have had a conversation with a Christian that's helped you? I mean, I can't tell you what community has meant for me in my own walk with Jesus. Um, I can't tell you how, like, my faith has literally crumbled to non-existence before. And when I finally came clean with somebody, I found out that I wasn't alone. And all of a sudden, my faith came rushing back. Um, God has not made us to be alone. And this reality is great for you, especially for those of you who aren't Christians, because you're not alone. If you ask someone to help you understand something, if you tell somebody like an objection, you'll be doing 
something that pretty much everybody else in this room has already done. That's good news. And so, for all of us, talk to somebody, pray, study the Bible, get answers to these questions, get help. Sometimes God won't answer your objections until you reach out to someone else. I was talking to somebody else a couple weeks ago, and they were going through a particularly serious loneliness, and they felt abandoned by God. They felt like they were trying to do what God wanted, but they didn't feel God's presence. And as we were praying together, I said, you know what? I don't think that God is going to draw near to you until you draw near to other people in your life. He was part of a different ministry. He wasn't part of our church. Otherwise, I would have been like, hey. And, and I said, actually, you're starting to do that right now. And you know how good this feels? He goes, yeah. And I said, Jesus is actually waiting for you in the community that you're a part of. He is waiting for you to meet him there. And I don't think he's going to meet you until you're willing to go outside of yourself and find Jesus in the family. Because when we can respond to objections like this, when we can make room for other people to object and not make them feel condemned, that's when we become the family. That's when we become more of the us and our faith begins to trump all the differences that exist and we realize that we are together here in this. We're helping each other on the road to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for letting us be honest with our objections. Thank you for inspiring the Bible so that it addresses real objections, questions that we struggle with, questions that plague us and make us doubt. Jesus, we want to bring to you our doubts. We want to admit that there's stuff that you've said, there's stuff that goes on that we just don't understand. And so help us. Draw near to us with your presence and your character and your mission. And help us to find you in relationships in the church. Help us to remember who you are and what you're doing in the world so that we can join you in that and to see how our objections sometimes have specific answers that we just don't know. And other times, you just ask us to trust you when we don't understand. And so lead us into that and help us to create space for each other, to be honest about our feelings and our issues so that we can be your family, so that we can love each other with the love that you love us with. I pray for everyone, Jesus, that's here who is specifically struggling with something and they don't know how to deal with it. Lead them today to speak up. Lead them today to talk to someone here in this church so that they can find out that at least someone's there with them and understands. Do this today, Jesus, so that you would receive glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.